0: Thank you
2: so much. Yeah, well, I mean, it turns out I'm in your homeland. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm in <laughs> Scotland right now. You're in California. We're all we're all just moving all over the place. <laughs> aren't
0: we just? Aren't we just? I mean, one of the
2: millions of downsides
0: to COVID, of course, but one of the upside is that we can all work from anywhere, and that's that's wonderful.
2: I mean, I'm very angry about the fact I'm going to have to put on what I call hard pants again, hard, like yeah. things with buttons. <laughs> I'm very bitter about it. I have to like, normally I've been having for the last two years, all my marketing has been done with what I call the the COVID mullet, which is like business on the top that you see in a Zoom and just pajamas on the bottom. And now I'm going to actually have to put on real clothes again.
0: <laughs> and you know, let me tell you this, I've had to do it too, because I've interviewed some people in person um, here in San Francisco and I did have to put on clothes and I was so nervous about whether they were going to fit me or not. <laughs>
2: I think our tolerance for tightness has changed. My mom has this theory that when you watch sci-fi films, everyone's wearing very loose clothing and she believes they've been through a pandemic at some point and they just don't want to wear tight-fitting clothes anymore.
0: I love it. I think that's so true. Let me introduce you, Victoria. So you write as V.E. Schwab. You're a number one New York Times bestselling author of adult, young adult and middle grade fiction in the fantasy genre, which really, and we'll talk about that because that's a big span of um, adult, young adult and middle fiction. But anyway, we'll talk about that. Victoria grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and has lived between Nashville, France and Edinburgh. Victoria is best known for her books, including Vicious, The Shades of Magic series, and The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Her latest novel, *Ballant*, is about a family manor house hiding dark secrets, and a young woman grappling life, death, and what's hidden behind closed doors. Wow. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's a big book. Um, tell me, tell me how you came to writing. Go right back.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually um, grew up surrounded by poetry. I was always wow. like short- And poetry. I mean, my parents read me poetry before bed each night. I had this sense of rhythm and cadence before I ever had a sense of narrative structure. Um, All through high school, I wrote poetry. I was poet laureate of my high school. It wasn't until I got to college. I'd never tried anything longer than a short story. And I realized I was 19. So I was a sophomore at university. And I realized that the reason I hadn't tried to write a novel was because I was terrified of failing to write a novel. Hmm. And I have this extraordinarily adversarial relationship to fear. Like I have a fear of heights. And so I jumped out of an airplane and I have a fear of needles. And so I get tattoos like I just I become almost combative toward fear. And so the day I realized that that's what was stopping me, that I had a fear of failing to finish something, I realized I had to do it. And so I sat down and I wrote a novel not in a single sitting, obviously, but over the course of about three months. And it was, it was terrible. I think that that's like very important part of the creative process is that. Well, it's is there, practice. Yeah. And there's so much of writing. You really only learn by doing yeah. and getting better at it. And so it was terrible, but because I had this poetic cadence to everything that I did from coming from poetry, it caught attention and it got me my first agent. And thankfully it didn't sell it went to to the publishers and it went to acquisitions, that final step at the publishers four times. And thankfully everyone realized it didn't have a plot at some point along that line. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I went back, I focused on my schooling and it was yeah. when I was a senior at university that I realized, oh, I'm, now I'm at another crossroads, right? Just like I was at the crossroads that first time, where I realized I had to do this thing. I'm either going to step away from writing for a decade or two and then circle back around at a later time in my life, or I'm going to sit down right now and prove to myself it wasn't a fluke. And so that's what I did. I I checked out of my art studio space. I was a studio art major at that point, and I um checked out for two hours every single night and walked across the co- to the coffee shop across the street from campus, and I wrote. And by the time I graduated college, I had what would go on to become my first published novel, The Near Witch. Um, So that's interesting, the separation, that you had to separate it from your studio. Yeah, I needed like, I needed to take it seriously.
0: Yeah. Mm. So when we're looking at poetry, you're looking at, I don't know, how many words? It's really word
2: counts, isn't it, right? Yeah. Well, Um, no, it's, I mean, poems are whatever they need to be, but everything I was always attracted to, you know, it was William Blake, it was Shel Silverstein, it was like these almost capsule energetic feelings. It was E.E. E. Cummings and Pablo Neruda, like they were just very contained. Mm. So then to go to write long form, that, as you
0: said, that's a challenge. And fantasy <laughs> is also another I challenge know. on top
2: of that. Yeah. So like, why the genre? I mean, well, the genre part's easy for me. I just can't write realism. It doesn't excite me. For me, I'm like, I grew up wanting the world to be stranger than it was. I just always want to find that extra layer of magic to the world that I want it to be very grounded and very layered on top of our world so that you kind of, rather than having the kind of story like Tolkien that you'll only ever access through the pages of a book, I want it to be the kind of story that you think I just have to find the right doorway. I just have to find the right thing that's going to help me see a layer to the world that I haven't seen before. And so that's just the thing that excites me. That's why I tell stories in the first place. So I don't ever see myself telling a story that doesn't have at least some magical component to it.
0: Mm. So, you know, when I t- talk to crime fiction writers, I often wonder what's in their head. <laughs> you know, mm. Things can be quite brutal on the, pa- on the page. But I guess it's the same for a fantasy writer. I mean, are you? Um, is your mind in a fantasy world the
2: entire time? Always. No, I don't think always as bombastic or as loud as sometimes the fantasy that I write can be. But I do think there's a quiet observance that I feel toward the world around me in that I'm constantly looking for cracks. I'm constantly looking for more. Mm. I think it it permeates every part of my day. It's just how I live. I'm not very good at reality. I, my parents joke that it's like good that I can make a living making things up because I'm really not very good at the reality part. But yeah, I think it just goes hand in hand with being immersed in a story. Mm.
0: No, I, I could have this all wrong and you're, you probably have got some better stats around this, but I feel that fantasy, as we grow older, we stop reading it because our responsibilities, our world becomes more serious as adults. Maybe we don't let ourselves fantasise enough, if you like. Is, is that, would you say that that's true, that as we grow up, we kind of dream less?
2: I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I think it depends okay. on the nature of the world around us at the time. And I think some of us definitely gravitate more towards grounded fiction or honestly, I think people stop reading. I don't think that they yeah. stop reading fantasy. I think people stop Reading because all fiction, all all, all stories, even nonfiction, even memoirs, you're you're taking yourself out of your own mind, out of your own life, and putting yourself in someone else's place, whether it's fantasy realism or or essay. And I think people stop doing that. I think there's an attention span that's lost. But I don't think if they are reading, I don't think there's a a bifurcation where they're not reading fantasy, because I think what it speaks to is the same thing that makes us want to watch TV shows and go to movies, is a desire to just escape. I mean, it is escapism. And I think that there's a recapturing of the whimsy that we felt when we were young. I think it's harder to obtain when you get older, but I think that's why fantasy is such a popular genre, because we desperately want to recapture the dreamscape that we have so easily when we're young. Mm. Mm. Now, so I'm learning
0: here, so bear with me. So when I speak, again, when I speak to crime fiction writers, when I speak to historical fiction writers, people talk to me about the discipline of story, so the arcs that you need to include with historical fiction, the research you need to do. And there is, in a way, a certain amount of work that
2: goes to creating that story. What is it in fantasy? That's such a good question, because I think there's a complete misnomer Mm -hmm. that if you look at science fiction and fantasy, science fiction has the rules and fantasy doesn't. And that's Mm. completely incorrect. Fantasy has just as many rules as science fiction. It's just they're woven into the fabric of the world that you're building. There's still an inherent logic. There are still hierarchies of power. There are still systems and politics and order and conflict. But you're... You're redefining what normal is. You're Mm. deciding what the baseline is. When you write from crime or from realism, your baseline is normal. It's the world around us as it is. It's still a tapestry that you have to reconstruct on the page, but you're not constructing it whole cloth. When you're writing fantasy, you're deciding how far you're departing from normal, and then you're reconstructing a new normal from which to play. But there's still an incredible amount of work that goes into creating a fabric, creating a world that feels believable. And in order to do that, it has to have a level of depth and complexity and nuance. And it's not even about getting more of that on the page. It's about choosing which details to put onto the page from which the reader will be able to infer the rest. Mm, That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah, I I
0: understand that. So when you're writing, adult fantasy when you're writing young adult fantasy when you're writing middle grade fantasy tell me how you go about that is it that you you've got the story right and are you pitching it to a different audience or are you that story you feel is at middle grade level does that make sense
2: yes and I think I don't the fact is it's not as though I write down to middle grade Not as though I simplify anything. Um, What I would say is the only way I know how to describe it is that I'm writing for a different version of myself. Because I don't really know who anyone else was when they were 10 or 17 or 30, and I was weird. So I can really only speak to my own personal experience, but I know exactly who I was when I was 10 and 17 and 30. And I know what I needed and what I wanted and what kind of story would have spoken to me and made me feel seen. So when I'm writing a novel, I think less about where it sits on a shelf and more about which version of me would have picked it up. And I think that makes a book like Gallant really interesting because it's my first ever all ages read. So it's technically me saying, this is the one time I'm not dictating which version of me because I can see 10 year old me and 17 year old me and 30 year old me picking it up for different reasons. Okay,
0: so when I was growing up there wasn't a young adult market. And I think when I think about it now, I worked in bookstores, I guess fantasy was sometimes a segue for young for from going to reading children's books to adult books. Sometimes fantasy was a segue for some people, at other times it was Tom Clancy or Jackie Collins or whatever. So this genre has become huge as you know. Do you have any reasons around that? Like, do you, can you shed some light on why and how that's happened?
2: I I mean, I don't, I don't know. Cause honestly I was Mm. the teenager who read like Stephen King and Robert Ludlum. And and I didn't really read YA when Mm. I was a young teen, aside from probably Harry Potter, because I was 11 when the first book came out. So it was just like generational experience, but no, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps it's just that we, live in a time where there's such an abundance of narrative in so many forms and so it allows itself to be demarcated and broken down and categorized perhaps it's just the business side of it and the engines that want to have delineation and the, I think maybe there's probably a psycho psychological aspect to it of like as we become inundated with information because of technology we seek ways to partition that information so that mm. we don't become overwhelmed i think there's also a component that that in that same line, as we have access to everything at our fingertips, we become more specific. And I say that not necessarily in a good way, because if you think about how we used to listen to music, not in way back, but like in my youth, you know, you'd have a CD and you would know one song on the CD and in buying the CD, you would discover you know, 11 other tracks. I think now the specificity sometimes works against us because because we know how to find exactly what we want, we're less likely to stumble on what we don't know. Mm. So I think there's, I think honestly, it's more business than art when it comes to why we have the categories that we have and the breadth that we have. But I think it's just an accessibility as well. I think that there's just more.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
0: I think also in the fantasy young adult genre, you touched on some points there that we have access to everything now, you know, and kids, I believe, in in most places and certainly where I live and you live, they have an affluence and a wealth about them that we never had. You know, I was an immigrant, grew up very poor. But what I see now is that you're right, everything's at everybody's fingertips, particularly young people. So there needs to be something else, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah,
2: I think so. I mean, I the thing that I find most fascinating right now is like book talk, like the book section of TikTok, because mm-hmm. this is a generation that keeps being told by outside, like we judge them and we say, oh, you don't have an attention span. Like everything is in 15 second increments. Like this is an audience we would not think reads books as much mm-hmm. as like short form media. Mm-hmm. And yet book talk, the book section of TikTok has transformed The literary landscape and the sales markets by selling millions of copies of books. And this is, and they make it popular. They make it fun. They make it the trendy thing to do read these books. And I'm, I think it's such a fascinating look at at the assumptions that we make about that readily available information shortening our focus. And it's almost a rebellion against that because they, they read these like 800,000 page novels and they, they, the peer pressure of it is like, read this thing with me, be a fan with me, commit to this with me, love this with me. But instead of it just being film or television or, or music in much more consumable bites, they're taking on epics. Look, you know, so many people. It
0: is fascinating. So many people. um, I mean, you know, I often get interviewed about people's reading habits and people saying, you know, kids are losing their attention span. And I said, but look at Harry Potter. They dropped everything and they read thousands and thousands of pages. So you give people a good story, Mm -hmm. and you've got them.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think allowing it. Like, I think there's always these think pieces that come out that like books will be left behind as we move forward, everything, everyone's always doom and glooming on books. And I'm like, no, they won't. Like they've, where they're being proven a time and time again, the darker our reality gets as we go through these just like extreme trials, books and stories, maybe the shape will change now and again, but it's not a replacement. It's like an expansion of shape and the stories, the power of escapes escapism and transportative narrative only get stronger. Because
0: mm. uh, I'm a lot older than you. I lived through the transition of well the introduction of ebooks. Audiobooks were around for a long time, but they weren't as popular. And I had a fear. I mean there was a time in my career that I thought, wow, we're going to lose the print book. But now it's just become another format. And I think you're right. I think we've gained more readers. I agree completely. And particularly audio. I mean, huge that that. Oh, it's not- huge and it's
2: amazing. I remember going through a period as well a few years ago where people would claim that if it was audio, it wasn't really a book. Oh, and I I've was like, heard what? That. ridiculous. Also, very ableist argument, of course. Um, and like audiobooks have been proven not only for people who have impaired sight, but for ADHD and for all kinds of narrative. Look, I travel, I'm a I'm a because my job is so sedentary, I'm a body in motion. I try and move whenever I'm not at my desk writing. So audiobooks are my preferred consumption because they can come with me. I'll go for an hour walk. And um, the audiobook is my companion, but the layer of Art, we talk so often about the transmutation of a book into the visual media, and we talk about what's gained and what's lost. But the transmutation into the audio media and how that can just create an immersive experience, I think it's a beautiful form of story.
0: Well, do you know what it takes me back to? Being read to Exactly. I mean, wasn't that just the most, I mean, I I love people reading to me. I still love it. As an adult, sometimes I just want to sit back on the lounge and I want somebody to read me a couple of pages. I love it. Yeah, what a gift. I love it. And also the quality, everything about audiobooks is so fantastic. All right, I want to go back to how you got your first book published how that happen? Cause you've got the first one didn't sell. So talk to me about that because it instantly became a bestseller, didn't
2: it? No, this is, this is the fallacy. This is how oh, we read okay. Okay. So my very first novel, The Near Witch yeah. came out. So it, it it got a book deal, a very modest ha- book Hang deal. on. Tell
0: me about it. Go, I want to go back to, to writing okay. it when you thought yeah. it was ready to go? Like, yeah.
2: So basically yeah. I wrote it in my second semester as a double major. This is where I took these two hours out each night and I wrote it. It was a fairy tale, like a very slim fairy tale. And right after I graduated college, it went out on submission to publishers. And that fall it sold. So it kind of took the summer mm-hmm. and it sold. And a huge amount of pressure gets put on debut authors. It's like oh, we, we I, I was saying in other profession, we don't go like, it's this doctor's first surgery. <laughs> like, <laughs> <yay>. <laughs> like we just like, we have this fetishization of the, of the untried. Anyway, my book came out and it, and very few people read it. And within 18 months, 18 to 24 months of publication, it, it, they took it out of print. All right, so okay. like Yep. I it was just like, it was just labeled an absolute failure. It wasn't. That was the great irony of it. It just it didn't live up to whatever my publisher's arbitrary expectation of it as a debut author. And and as I would go on to prove with the next 20 books, I'm a weird writer. I don't write into like the center of the mainstream commercial appeal. My books tend to like be strange and quiet and and off-center and as a debut author that's an extreme danger and it, it was. It didn't sell. What I love is Seven years later, after my career had kind of calcified a little bit, found itself, and people had begun to embrace that strangeness, uh, a, a different publisher brought The Near Witch back into print, and wow. it became an immediate bestseller. Wow. And so like, and I, and people would like, oh, so you went back and revised it or something? No, no, no. I, did, I, I, I refused to touch a word of the novel because I wanted to prove that it was the arbitrariness of context and like and reputation, you know, and and it was because the book came back in suddenly like people had a very different perspective on my work, and I had a much larger audience that understood that I wrote weird things and was willing to embrace that, and they loved it. And it spent multiple weeks on the New York Times list and has sold well since then. But I'm I'm very proud of the fact that. I don't want to simplify its narrative to it's always been a bestseller because it was a massive failure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, I, I didn't know that. And I really like that story. So the failure that it was didn't deter you from writing another.
2: It almost did. It, so it, I had three failures. My first book failed by a publishing metric. Yeah. My second book, a few more people read it, but not enough. My third book, a few more people read it, but not enough. I get to this point, I'm 25, so I'm quite young. And I'm basically being told my career's done mm-hmm. by my publisher, being told like, well, it's not us, so it must be you. Mm-hmm. And, and I was heartbroken and I was burned out. And I, and I had this make or break moment where I decided I'm gonna write one more book and I'm gonna stop wondering what anyone else wants to read. If I'm going out, I'm gonna write the book I wanna write I'm not going to think about the business. And that way, if everyone else is disappointed in me, at least I'm not disappointed in the book. At least I had fun writing. Because I, had, at this point, hadn't had fun writing in several years. It had, taken, it had stripped all the joy out, as turning a love into an occupation can do. So I wrote a book about supervillains. And you could basically call it, like, the secret history with supervillains. It was weird. The weirdest thing I'd ever written. So violent. So strange. And it was called Vicious. And I thought no one is ever even going to publish this, but at least I'll have had joy again in writing. And I sent it to my agent and she was like, dude, I don't know. That's not what, she didn't say it to me, but that was really the undertone was like the dude, I don't know. And it was like, okay. And she sent it to, she sent it out on submission and Tor Books. The editor there, Miriam Weinberg, basically took a flyer on it. And she was, and she said to me, she confessed to me afterwards. She says, I don't think we'll make money on this book, but I'm really excited to see what you do next. And it sold. And it did well. It continued to do well. It was never a bestseller, but it just picked up. It was like a ball rolling down a hill in the snow, right? It just picked up more and more each and every year, year over year. And and it gave me a chance to do another book and another book. And it gave me a publisher that was willing to let me take chances and take chances on me. So my fourth novel in many ways, saved my career because it allowed me, it didn't rescue me, but it allowed me to keep that door cracked open a little bit longer. And it wouldn't be until my eighth book, A Darker Shade of Magic, would like, wasn't even a bestseller, but really kind of cracked the door open. And my ninth book would become my first New York Times bestseller. And, you know, I'm 21 books in now. And it has just been, honestly, a lot of it, the last few years have been really great to me. But those first like six or seven were just they just were crushing in a lot of ways. They were just, Mm. it was, it was, it was loss after loss. It felt like. Mm. I don't speak to many authors that
0: really that writing has been their sole occupation or their life. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't happen that often.
2: No. I mean, I will tell you this. It was not a luxurious occupation for the first several years. I was very fortunate. Um, I'm an only child and I essentially had to move home. And I was lucky enough to have a family that allowed me to do that for six or seven months when I could not make ends meet myself. And it was truly by cobbling together, people ask why I wrote so many books and it was need. I mean, I could not afford to only write one book a year. I wasn't being paid well enough. And I was cobbling together a profession out of middle grade and YA and adult because that's what it took for me to have a livable wage for those first several years. And so my prolificness uh, came out of an an absolute refusal to quit and go home until somebody wouldn't let me do this anymore. Like I, if I could make it work, if I could find a way to generate enough income by doing this thing, I was going to keep doing it until, until that ball picked up enough steam. And it did, it finally did. Um, But I mean, it was several years of just being like, I'm not going home until someone makes me go home. I'm going to ask you this, but I think I know the answer. Um, What's your favorite
0: audience to write for? Like, is it adult? Is it YA? Is it middle grade? Or you don't think about that?
2: I don't think about it, but I will say this. The adult books are in some ways the easiest for me to write because I'm writing to who I am right now. So I don't have to kind of dig back through into my past self Mm. in the same way. I, I'm lucky now to have a measure of creative freedom no matter what I write, but I think with adult it was the first time when I I was a little, f- I was fearless. Writing adult was the first time when I thought I'm just going to swing for the fences. And I think I I then was, a, I'm, I love the stories that I tell for middle grade and YA, but I I feel a responsibility to my audience in middle grade and YA in that I understand how important fiction is at that age. And I will- I would never want to like, break that trust. Whereas with adults, I feel like I'm going to do what I want. And you're either going to show up or you're not, but I'm going to feel like I wrote the story with absolutely no holds barred. Mm. Okay. And my last question, does it get easier after 20
0: years?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, maybe for someone else. Uh, Here's the thing. I mean, I think publishing is like dog years, right? I feel like a withered crone at this point for having survived like 12 years in it. But um, I find creatively it gets harder. It just gets harder. And I don't know if that's because I want to get better and I want to push myself in each way, or if it's just because the larger the audience gets, the more eyes are on you. Or, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I struggle more and more with each book to get out of my own way. It's nobody else is in my way anymore, but I am in my own way. Victoria
0: Schwab, it's been an absolute pleasure. I have loved our conversation very much. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit
1: betterreading.com.au Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.